We have been uh, walking through the Gospel of Luke for the last uh, three months or so. Uh, we're into chapter five, so we have got a long way to go. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, the Gospel of Luke is essentially one of the biographies of Jesus, one of the four biographies of Jesus. And we've kind of got to the point now in the Gospel where Jesus has launched his, uh, if you like, public ministry. The first uh, three, four chapters were kind of setting the scene as to who Jesus is and what he's come to do, or at least who Luke believes he is and what he's come to do. And as Nathan reached, uh, preached a couple of weeks ago, uh, he's launched this kind of public ministry where he's sort of saying who he is and what he's going to do by uh, reading this or preaching this verse, these verses from Isaiah. And Nathan said it was almost like his vision statement for what he is intending to do. This is the words that he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the first sort of couple of chapters after this, this vision statement is really Jesus beginning to put this into practice. We heard from Adnan last week that he's called his first disciples, and now he's actually putting this into practice primarily through healing people both physically and also releasing them from what the gospel calls kind of demonic oppression. And what we're going to do today is look at one of these stories, uh, one of these encounters uh, that Jesus has uh, where Jesus heals a person. Uh, We're going to look at this story and we're going to uh, go through it, but also I'm going to speak to healing just in general terms because I think it's one of these subjects we don't necessarily talk about a lot. There'll be lots of different experiences or theological positions, or maybe this is your first time in church and you're like, what is this? So I just want to kind of set a bit of a kind of general stand as to what we believe healing to be and what Jesus can do in us and through us. So uh, let's start by reading the passage, uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. This is what it says. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "'Friend, your sins are forgiven.'" The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been laying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Now as I've been reflecting, uh, not just on this passage, but the numerous stories of healing that we read about in the gospel stories, but also the reality that many of us may have never experienced healing for ourselves when we've longed for it, or maybe hasn't been in a context where they've seen someone else be healed. 
there's a word that kind of keeps coming back to my mind about how we can kind of process this, the, the amount of healing that takes place in the gospel in the early church, and perhaps, perhaps the lack of healing that we perceive or see in our time. And that word is this word, tension. Tension because when it comes to healing, it's something we perhaps particularly long for and yet haven't experienced. And we read about it so freely in the New Testament. One of the, um, uh, my favorite verses actually in the Gospels is Mark 9, where a father is longing for his son to be healed. And he comes to Jesus asking Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says, you, you know, have faith that I can do it. And he says, I, want, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's this like beautiful verse that speaks to, I think, the tension of what we can experience when we think about who Jesus is, what he can do, but also our lived reality and our lived experience. And just to say, at the start of this talk, as a church, we do believe that God can heal today, that he still does heal today, supernaturally, miraculously, whatever you want to describe it, we do believe that. But it can create this tension when we are longing for healing and we haven't yet experienced it. But I also think you could apply this word tension to so much of our journey of faith. Tension with what we believe God has promised us, maybe prayers unanswered, or perhaps tension with people we've longed to see come to faith, maybe spent years praying for and yet haven't seen them follow Jesus. And this tension that we live within is often called, uh, it's kind of a cliched uh, phrase, but it's often called the now and not yet of the kingdom. And what that kind of means is Jesus, when he came to earth, he initiated this new kingdom full of healing and peace and joy and life. And yet it is still yet to be finally realized. We see signs and hints of his kingdom, but we still see and live with the pain, the suffering, the sin of this world and of our lives. And we live within this tension. And it can lead us to ask questions like, does healing even happen today? And if I've yet to experience healing for myself, is it somehow my fault? But there's another word I think that comes to mind when we think about this subject. Uh, it's not just tension, but there's also mystery. And I don't want to use that as a kind of cop-out to uh, what I'll be talking about. But there is no formula when it comes to healing. It is not an A plus B equals C kind of thing. And so we carry both this tension of what we read about in Scripture versus our lived experience with the knowledge that we will never fully and completely understand God and how he chooses to work in and through us. Tension and mystery. And some of us might be sat here kind of living right in the midst or the thick of that, that tension and mystery. Maybe you're longing for healing for yourself or for someone else. Or you've been part of context where you've been told that you've not been healed because of your own lack of faith. Or others, maybe healing has actually been a profound part of your own testimony, part of your own story. And you find it really difficult when you hear a cynical view on healing. You find it really difficult to understand when that's been part of your own experience and your own story. And I think healing, this whole subject, it challenges what we believe about God and how he chooses to work. It challenges what we believe about what we do here every week. It also challenges our tendency to think kind of materialistically or naturalistically instead of supernaturally. We could argue that Christianity is the best way to live with the best morals or ethics or we could say this is the best community to be part of, it's great to meet people and all that kind of stuff. But when we say that God can heal, 
that takes the call or the faith of a follower of Jesus to a whole nother level. You cannot fake healing. And so we're going to use this passage in Luke just to walk through a few, uh, walk through a few things. I, can't, I never get my THs right. Um, a few things. It's a PH, isn't it? No, it's not. Oh, anyway, whatever. Um, from this story, just to help guide us, think about this subject of healing. Now, the need for healing, the problem of sin, the role of faith, the importance of friendship, and the power of the Spirit. So firstly, the need for healing. So uh, at the start of this, this story in Luke, uh, we read that Jesus is leaving a mark. Uh, we read that people from all over are traveling to hear him speak, but also see these kind of signs and miraculous wonders that he is doing. And at that time, what would be more common for a rabbi, a teacher, uh, to do would be that they would travel around from town to town, which Jesus does, and people would wait for that person to arrive in that town or village and then hear that person speak in the local synagogue. But this is different. People are coming from all over to be where Jesus is. And I think part of that will be his words, will be what he's teaching those people, like this kind of new revolutionary words that he's speaking about God's kingdom, what it is and what it's not. But I think, perhaps more personally, I think people were hearing about the people who were being healed the people that were being restored and were thinking, man, I need to see this for myself or I'm carrying something that I want Jesus to heal in my own life. And in that time, sickness, physical sickness, wasn't just a a physical problem. It was a particularly a social one. And there's still some truth to that today, but particularly in that context, if you had a sickness or an illness or a disease, you were often ostracized from the community. You were not able to live within uh, the, the community at large because of your sickness and actually often people thought that it was because of that person's sin that they were being punished by God and therefore they wanted to be uh, pushed them out as far as they possibly could and yet Jesus throughout his gospel would often go to the outcast the person on the edges the person uh, who's been ostracized and would bring them in not just healing their their physical needs but also healing their heart healing their social needs healing their their faith every part of their whole life was healed by Jesus revealing the kind of kingdom that he came to bring that it is for everyone but today even with the incredible advances in technology and uh, with all of the amazing healthcare that we have access to, there is still a need. We are helpless to disease. In many cases, it is completely beyond our control. And it's interesting how our culture or parts of our culture try to deal with this problem. I've said this before, but we live in what Charles Taylor calls a disenchanted world meaning that uh, very often the kind of cultural norms or societal norms that we live within don't acknowledge any sense of the transcendent or the supernatural or spiritual. But instead, we live as if this is all there is, um, biology and chemistry. And so when that is the perspective that you carry, that there is no eternal life or there is no transcendence, the health of your body becomes really, really important. In fact, it goes to a whole other level. Now, just to be clear, having healthy bodies, being healthy, all that stuff is really, really important. It's really, really good. Uh, But I think in many ways, our culture has made an idol of health and well-being. And an idol is simply something, often a good thing, that has made an ultimate thing. And when our efforts of physical perfection or health are undone in the face of tragedy or in the face of things beyond our control, Our culture really offers no hope of healing in this life or beyond. 
But for followers of Jesus, we're also not immune to sickness. We're also not immune to tragedy. And for us, it creates this different dynamic, one we need to wrestle with, given that we believe God can heal. And we believe that one day he ultimately will dry every tear, heal every sickness. But for some of us, he hasn't. There is still a need. But there's another factor in this passage uh, that is highlighted, I think, incredibly beautifully by Jesus that reveals this almost like deeper need uh, for the human experience. And it's the problem of sin. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that despite the obvious need for physical healing that this man who was paralyzed would have had, and Jesus would have known almost certainly why his friends had tried so hard to get him to Jesus. They wanted him to be healed from his paralysis. But Jesus, he forgives the man's sin first. Now, I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if the man he healed thought that his suffering, his pain, was perhaps because God was unhappy with him, that it was some form of punishment. But Jesus, he does something profound to this man, who I think this is probably the first time he's ever met Jesus. It says he sees their faith and he calls him friend. And I think by Jesus calling this man friend, it removes any theological notion that this, what he had gone through, was punishment by an angry God. Now, we don't know anything about this guy other than his physical condition. But what if, what if what was truly going on in his heart was not primarily a cry for physical healing, as important as that is, but I wonder if there was something deeper going on in his life, in his heart, that Jesus needed to speak forgiveness over before healing him. Perhaps Jesus needed to heal his heart before healing his body. And for that man, the order that Jesus does this in, forgiving his sin and then healing his body, it validates, Jesus healing his body validates the fact that his sins are forgiven. You know, to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, if you're not Jesus, they are in some ways empty words. But for Jesus to say that and then actually physically heal someone, do something miraculous, it proves to that man, oh my gosh, my sins are forgiven. My body's been healed and my sins are forgiven too. This man doesn't just walk away healed, he walks away forgiven. So it's amazing, um, amazing the way Jesus kind of deals with this and, and treats this guy, treats him as a friend. But this, pow- this passage, I think, also again reveals and reminds us of the destructive power of sin. All deceit, all disease and decay and death is the consequence of what we would call the fall, a consequence of sin entering the world. Sin doesn't happen because disease is present. It's the other way around. In Romans 5, it says that, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And it's a reminder that when sickness comes, when disease comes, when tragedy comes, when it feels and it brings up feelings like, oh, this shouldn't, it shouldn't be like this. It's because it was never intended to be like this. Now, we... For those of us who carry physical sickness or are longing for healing, maybe anxiety or whatever it might be, and we haven't experienced that, I don't know why that's the case. I don't know why some are healed and others aren't. But I do know that if we ask Jesus for forgiveness, he will forgive us. If we confess and repent of our sin, there is nobody that God does not forgive. But what's important to think about here. I think in this passage, again, reminds us is what comes to mind when we think about the word sin? 
And if I was to summarize the most stereotypical understanding of sin in our culture, particularly popular culture, I would describe it as this. Sin means breaking the rules. Breaking the rules makes God angry and or upset. Jesus didn't break any rules. Jesus took the punishment for the rules that we break. We get to go to heaven. Or to put it another way, the goal is heaven. The problem is breaking the rules, i.e. sin. And the solution is Jesus didn't break any rules and took the blame for our rule breaking. Now, if that was the, the main lens for what following Jesus is, even though there are like hints of truth in that way of thinking, then I think we've got some major problems. Firstly, this, this understanding gives no, uh, gives no reason for sickness, for why disease and death enters the world because of sin. In fact, if that was our paradigm, it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that sickness is what an angry God might do to us for breaking the rules. But it's also just devoid of any relationship or any vision of why we are here right now and who we were made and created to be. It gives us no sense of purpose for our time here on earth. And if the goal for us is to go to heaven, then the only real goal for us on earth is to try really hard not to break all the rules or to sin before we get there. And I think this way of thinking downplays the power of sin, which is key to what we're thinking about today. When the only way we think about sin is through this paradigm of breaking a rule or shoulds or should nots, it ignores the insidious and destructive power of sin. In fact, the first mention of the word in the Bible uh, was in an interaction between God and Cain. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. A rule does not desire to have you. Biblical sin is more, way more than just breaking a rule. It has a power and a will of its own that leads to the enslavement and destruction of our souls, our bodies, and creation too. Death, sickness, and decay enters the world because of sin. But Jesus, as we read in this story, years before the cross, not only has the power to heal the body, but he has the power to forgive our sins. To break its power, its insidious power over our lives. To allow us to walk by the Spirit, empowered not to live for the flesh. To not allow sin to get a foothold on our lives. To learn what true freedom looks like. Jesus frees us from the problem of sin. So let's now take a look at the role of faith. So verse 20 again, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on to heal the man, as we read. Now, if you read every, pretty much every occurrence of a healing in the New Testament, it would be very, very difficult to argue that faith doesn't play a role. I think Jesus loves to honor our faith. He loves to honor the faith of those who put their trust in him, that believe that Jesus has the power to heal. However, when someone is not healed, when we pray for someone or pray for ourselves and we don't experience healing, here's what can happen. Firstly, we can feel like it's our fault that a feeling hasn't taken place because of our lack of faith. Or it can kind of create this odd dynamic where somehow we have to sort of drum up a load of faith in our own strength and try to quiet all the doubts that someone could be healed. So what role does faith play? And to try to get to grips with that, to try to understand the role of faith in healing, I want to use a story or or reference a story where Jesus actually rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith or an absence of faith. 
Now, Jesus does this a few times in the Gospels, and when he does this, he uses two Greek words interchangeably, or at least the, the, the authors of the Gospels use two Greek words interchangeably when he describes an absence of faith or a lack of faith. The first is this word, apistos, which means, basically means no faith at all, so unbelief. And then the other word is oligopistos, which means a little faith, but not enough. But the challenge for us is that, as I said, these words are kind of used interchangeably in corresponding ways. And so I just want to use a story in Matthew 17 to try and help us get to grips with this. It's a story of when the disciples try to heal a boy that is demon-possessed, and Jesus rebukes them. And he, Firstly, he calls them uh, apistos, unbelieving, and then three verses later, he calls them oligopistos, which is you have so little faith. So Jesus literally uses both occurrences of this word in this uh, conversation with his disciples as to why this boy wasn't healed. So how do we understand that? Do healings not take place because of uh, no faith or unbelief or a small amount of faith or a lack of faith? To answer, uh, Jesus goes on after he rebukes the disciples uh, to speak of this well-known parable. And I'm just going to read it out. It's, uh, so it's Matthew 17, 19 and 20. It says this. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, if you read this carefully, it kind of looks like Jesus is contradicting himself. You have so little faith, but if you have a little bit of faith, you can do the miraculous. Do you see the kind of the, the almost contradiction here? So is, is he? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, I don't think he is, but you'd be surprised to hear. I think Jesus, what he's doing here is comparing belief and unbelief. Faith that Jesus can heal, even if it's small, with no faith that Jesus can heal. And I think that that verse I, I referenced earlier, I want to believe how my unbelief is a kind of great uh, example of what I'm trying to say here. Because we're not to have faith that a healing can take place. We're not to kind of drum up some sort of like belief that a miraculous thing can happen. We're to have faith that Jesus can heal. Not that just some, someone can be healed. We have to have faith that Jesus is the one that heals and he can do it. That he is who he says he is. That he has defeated sin and death. That life is in him. That is where our faith is placed. It's in him. That kind of the smallness of the faith, the mustard seed, is to kind of describe just how big and good God is. And if you have ever felt that someone, or maybe even yourself, hasn't experienced healing because your faith was too small, say the size of a mustard seed, I don't think Jesus is saying you need to drum up more faith. I think he's saying don't focus on faith, but focus on him. Focus on Jesus. Faith follows knowing Jesus. And remember when we pray for people to be healed, when we pray for ourselves to be healed, there is no formula here. There is tension. There is mystery. But faith in Jesus is key, even if it's as small as a mustard seed. And Jesus loves to honor our faith. The need is real. Sin is a problem. Faith is key. Next, the importance of friendship. And this one is really uh, particularly relevant for the story that we've read today. I just love that his four friends were the ones that carried him to Jesus' feet. And I bet if they couldn't get to Jesus, uh, they would have carried him home as well. And um, I was reflecting on this uh, in my own life and, um, and my own story and my own kind of spiritual kind of heritage, if you like. And um, my, uh, 
I'll give you a little uh, uh, reveal my sort of family history. But my um, uh, great-grandmother, uh, she was widowed uh, quite young. So my grandfather was uh, six years old uh, when she died. My great-uncle was yet to be born. She was pregnant at the time. Uh, my great-grandfather uh, uh, died in the mines. He was a miner. It was just a horrible accident. Um, I was, he was in the lift, and it collapsed. It was just horrible. And she was left uh, to be the mother of five boys, five sons, uh, very, all very young. And she wasn't a follower of Jesus. Uh, she wasn't a Christian and uh, had various sort of health challenges as the boys uh, grew up. Uh, one of the, her sons actually passed away uh, tragically as well. So just a real story of tragedy and pain uh, and, and poverty. And... Um, there's a, a kind of small community group, uh, not unlike one of the community groups that many of you are part of, uh, that met next door to where my grand, great-grandmother lived in the village I grew up in. Um, and uh, they were praying one evening, and uh, one of them shared how Mrs. Wade, the neighbor, was really, really sick, really, really ill. Um, I, can't, I don't actually know exactly what she had, but basically really, like, couldn't get up, bedridden. Uh, and when you're that and you're... The, the mother of lots of boys, that's like a challenge, uh, a very massive challenge. And um, one of the people in the community group just thought, I feel like we need to go and pray for Mrs. Wade. I think we literally need to go knock on her door and pray for her. And uh, that's what they did. They knocked on the door, prayed for Mrs. Wade, and she was healed from what she was suffering with. And uh, she became a follower of Jesus. All, all of her sons became followers of Jesus. And when I think about my sort of family tree, knowing the people that I do in my family, knowing how many of them are sort of faithfully following Jesus. My gratitude is for that one person that felt like God spoke to them to say, I think that person's going to be healed, shared it with their friends who had the courage and the faith to go to the next door, knock on the door, pray for Mrs. Wade. She gets healed. She becomes a Christian. And like my, my life, you know, I'm the fourth generation down. Like, it's just, just incredible. When you get a nudge from Jesus, when you feel like God may have spoken to you, where you feel like you've got a word for someone, where you feel like God's given you the faith to pray for healing for someone, you have no idea, not just the impact, but the generational impact that could have on someone's life. I am the product of a community group who had the courage to go and pray for someone. Like a scary, that's like a scary moment. Like what could God do through us? What could God do through you? Uh, and I'm sure that group would have been like, oh, what if, what if she doesn't get healed? That'd be super embarrassing. Or how do we process that? Or whatever, like all the thoughts that we would have. But they had the courage of their convictions. They had faith that, that they could be healed. They went over together. They prayed. She was healed. And her life was never the same. My grandfather's life was never the same. My dad, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, just this remarkable story of hearing from God, praying for healing, but the role of friendship in all of that. And I actually say friendship on purpose. We talk about community a lot. Here And I think we have an incredible community. I think we are so welcoming. But I use friendship here on purpose because I think there's, a, there's, there's almost like more power to that word. And I say it because there'll be people here that do go through illness. Some might go through chronic illness. Some might be unable to come to a service because they're sick, carrying stuff that they've carried for many, many years. And I just want to encourage you as their brothers and sisters to reach out, to not forget them. And I know there's been people that have felt like, because they haven't been present, because of sickness, they felt like, ah, oh, does anyone notice? Does anyone care? Am I seen? So I just want to encourage you. Like sometimes I'll just get thoughts of, oh, I should text this person. I've not seen them for a while. I should, whatever, go over, um, take a phone call, whatever it could be. Like, just don't forget your brothers and sisters. Like, that's super important in a community like ours. And particularly for those that are, are struggling, often in silence, 
often not sharing everything about what they're going through, um, I just want to encourage us, let's be the best friends we can be to our community. Let's be um, brothers and sisters in Christ for those that are going through stuff that we don't fully understand or know uh, in the fullness that they, uh, of their lives. So friendship's really important. Finally, the power of the Spirit. Now, one of the perspectives on healing is that uh, it was only for the early church or for Jesus, that Jesus uh, healed people because it revealed that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I don't buy that at all. I buy that Jesus uh, used healing as a way to reveal the kingdom that he was bringing through. Like That was totally part of what healing was about. But I don't buy that it wasn't that we're supposed to stop with him or stop with the early church. Like I just don't buy that at all. There's nothing in scripture that supports that view in my opinion. But what's really important for us to think about here is that the power that was in Jesus to heal is actually the same power that is in us. The same power that lived in Christ, that raised him from the dead even, lives in us. And I think often what we can think is that Jesus was able to do all this stuff because he was the son of God, and there's some truth to that. But when we look at the first three or four chapters of Luke, there's been two major themes that we've seen. The first is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And secondly, he was filled with the power of the Spirit. Luke 3.22 describes this super explicitly. It says, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, the reason why I make this point is that the, the reason Jesus was able to heal was because the, the Spirit of God was in him. The incarnation, which is the word that we use to describe Jesus coming in human form, meant that he kind of gave up some of his authority, some of his power. He was still God, but he gave up some of his, power, some of his power to come in human flesh. And it was the Spirit of God that was in him that allowed him to heal. The story that kind of makes this so plain is the story of the woman later on in the Gospels, who was, had suffered for years and years with bleeding, and she thinks, if I could just touch Jesus' robe, like, I'll be healed. She does it, and Jesus, it says he, like, he, he feels the power leaving him. It's like the, the, power, the power of God has left him to heal this woman. She gets healed. Uh, it's just inc- this incredible story. That same power lives in us. Isn't that like, incredible? And for us, as we think about healing, we need to just remind ourselves of the power that is in us, that Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, is within us to heal. Jesus didn't stop being God when he was here, but he intentionally laid down his power and authority, and it was the spirit of God uh, that was in him to do the works of the spirit, which he then passes on to us. In fact, he says, you'll be able to do even more greater things than I to the early church. So when we pray for healing, we should know and trust that God's spirit is in us and uh, it is with us. So what I want to do uh, just to land in just a moment is I want us to obviously spend some time praying. Um, And again, just to say there is no formula here. Um, Sometimes God gives gifts of healing. Sometimes God gives gifts of faith. And other, other times he doesn't. And again, I don't know why some are healed and why others aren't. But in some ways tonight, I just want to surrender any outcome to Jesus and just trust him Uh, that he can do and will do what he wants to do through us tonight. But I do want to just make a a comment firstly before we do pray for healing. And I want to leave a space for us to, to actually repent, to ask God for forgiveness. Before we ask for healing, to ask him for forgiveness, to kind of follow the the, the narrative of this story where Jesus forgives this man's sins before he heals his body. 
And the, verse, the verses that I've been reflecting on, particularly to do with the interplay between repentance, forgiveness of sins, and the healing of the body, is James 15, verse 16. It says this, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, I don't fully understand the connection here between repentance and healing, but I think not only do we see it in Scripture, but I think when we talk about healing or even revival, where we want to see a move of God happen, there is undoubtedly a link uh, between that, God pouring out his spirit, and our repentance, the confession of our sins, the ways in which we've fallen, and just being like, Jesus, I'm sorry, and just receiving the forgiveness of God. And where James uses this word, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I don't think James is referencing the kind of righteousness that is ours because of Jesus. I actually think he's, he's talking about a person that has confessed their sins, that is seeking to follow Jesus with everything they have, seeking to live a holy life that's devoted to him, putting him as the primary love in their life. That person's prayer is powerful and effective. So I want to just leave a space... Um, Maybe Pete could come up and just play some music. Just a space for us just to um, have some time between us and God, just repenting of the ways in which we've fallen short. And then I'll uh, just lead us into a prayer, a prayer for healing as well. Why don't you stand to your feet? And um, Pete will just uh, play just, just for a little bit and we'll just have some, some quiet, some silence just for you to pray your own prayers to reflect on, on this, this idea. Maybe confession, repentance is a new concept to you, but as I've said, it, confessing, repenting to Jesus is the best, safest, most life-giving place you could be. Um, there is no judgment. There's always forgiveness. He always greets us with friend. Um, so we'll just leave a space to do that. And you might want to close your eyes. You might want to kneel. You might want to do whatever. Um, you might actually want to talk to someone. You might want to confess to someone in person. Um, but we'll leave a space for that and then I'll uh, lead us on.